Part three: Skills to acquire. Skill, noun, the ability to do something well. Expertise. Please note: in this section, we'll be talking about skills and not talents. These are not unique and special attributes you were born with. They are learned abilities. Developing a new skill set or growing in a certain area is something accomplished with focus and time and hard work. So, good news! Even if these aren't things you currently possess in your arsenal, you're still entirely capable of making them yours. No excuses. Remember, we let go of those in part one. Skill one: planning. The first time Dave and I went to Amsterdam. We got lost. We were a young married couple, and neither of us had ever traveled to Europe before. We made all the classic mistakes. We packed too many countries into too few days. We went to every tourist location the world has ever known. We lived in fear of the gypsies who might steal our worldly possessions, and so, though it pains me to admit it to you. We wore our passports and money under our clothes in special Velcro pouches created specifically for this purpose. Bless. On that trip, we went to London and later explored Rome and Florence, and got trapped in Venice during an Italian transportation strike. But before that happened, there was Amsterdam. I will be fully transparent. We added Amsterdam to the list because the child nerds that we were thought it would be cool to go to a country where you could get a cup of coffee and legal marijuana in the same establishment. Did either of us smoke marijuana or even eat it inside brownies? No, which is why it felt illicit enough to visit an entire country for just this purpose. In our defense, this was circa 2005. So marijuana wasn't easily available like it is today. Also, we were idiots. But back to Amsterdam. We flew from London to Amsterdam on Ryanair, basically an aerodynamic cardboard box with all the luxury amenities of a medieval oubliette. But on our way into land, the plane reared us back up into the sky. The fog was too thick, apparently, and we had to be rerouted. If you're young, you'll have to imagine a time before smartphones existed. The rest of us still have nightmares about those days, but we were in the thick of it. We were rerouted to wait for it, an entirely different country. I honestly don't know how this is possible, but it's true. Rather than landing in Amsterdam, we landed in Frankfurt. Germany, y'all. I did not have a German translation book. I did not have Lonely Planet's Guide to Germany with all the helpful little English phrases because I never intended to go there. We were so stinking confused. Somehow, through many questions and even more pantomiming, we gathered that we'd now be getting on a bus, an honest-to-goodness bus. That would then drive us into Amsterdam. The bus was crammed to the gills with Europeans in giant parkas to contend with the winter temps. It smelled like my minivan after a half-full bottle has been allowed to bake inside it undetected in the Texas heat. Sour and wrong. 
We were nauseated and not entirely positive that this was really where we were supposed to be. Next came the train. In retrospect, I'm not even sure how we made it this far. Maybe we just blindly followed the other people on the airplane slash bus right onto that train. But one way or another, we were finally on our way to Amsterdam. When we arrived in the city, we walked out of the train station with no clue how to get to our hotel. We had a printout of the name and the address, and we just sort of awkwardly asked one person after another, Do you know how to get to this hotel? That person didn't speak English. We tried another. Excuse me, do you know how to get to this hotel? Another confused person who couldn't answer us. Person after person either didn't understand what we were asking or answered us in a language we couldn't decipher. We flagged down a taxi and showed him the address. Amsterdam, he told us. Yes, yes, sir, Amsterdam. Can you take us? We were exhausted at this point, had been asking people while towing our suitcases behind us for nearly an hour. Amsterdam, he said again. And when we just looked at him confused, he drove off. We started asking every person we passed until finally, blessedly, we found a man who spoke broken English. Sir, do you know how to get to this hotel? I pointed emphatically at the address on my now wrinkled and dirty paper. He looked at the paper, then back at us, then back at the paper again. Yes, is Amsterdam. Yes, we know, I pointed to the streets around me. Which direction? How do we get there? Is Amsterdam, he said again. I wanted to scream or cry, and he must have sensed my growing distress because he stiltedly fought his way through his response. Hotel is Amsterdam, he told us. You are here. Horror started to dawn on me. Where is here? I asked him. He shook his head. Not Amsterdam. You guys, we weren't even in the right city. We were still two hours away from it. Likely, we were supposed to get on another train to take us there, but we didn't know. We were sheep. We followed the crowd. What was supposed to be a two-hour flight ended up being an entire day of planes and trains and automobiles. And we didn't get to the hotel until it was too late to do anything. I'm sure God was trying to keep me from ingesting illicit baked goods on foreign soil. But the point is still the same. The first step toward achieving your goal is to know where you're headed. The problem is that often people think that's all they need to know. They forget one crucial piece of the puzzle. A map only works if you know both your end and your starting point. Said another way, you cannot get to where you want to go if you don't know where you are. You need a roadmap. You need a starting point. You need a finish line. You need to know the guideposts and mile markers along the way. You need a plan of attack. You can talk about the things you want for your life every single day. I'm sure you can even find friends who will go to coffee with you and daydream and brainstorm, 
But none of that matters if you don't actually develop a real plan to get you where you want to be. People don't get lost because they're not sure where they want to go. People get lost because they start out on a path and don't keep checking to make sure they're still headed in the right direction. How often do you set out on a road trip without a map or directions? The only time we do that is if we don't care where we end up. We just want to take a drive and listen to music and see what we find. But if we actually have somewhere we want to be, if we actually have a destination in mind, we always have a map. Why? Because a map can get us there faster and more efficiently. Because when we see something from a 10,000-foot view, we're able to plan for and anticipate things that might pop up along the way. It's much harder to have any kind of real strategy when you're on the road. I have used this roadmap strategy for every major work project or personal goal I've taken on over the last 15 years. It's how I landed all my major clients in the event industry. It's how I booked press for myself without a publicist and used that exposure to propel my career. It's how I trained for a 10K, then a half marathon, and finally a full marathon. It's how I wrote my first book and got my first book deal. It's the strategy and intention behind everything in my life, from products to relationships. And I'm convinced there isn't anything it couldn't work for. It's not complicated. It only has three components. The trick is to approach these elements out of the usual order we expect them to be in. See, we're taught to start at one, then get to two, then end up at three. This is incredibly confusing if you don't know what step two is. And how are you supposed to know what the steps are if you've never taken them before? I've found that if I flip the order and start with the finish line, then contemplate where I'm starting from, I can more easily define the steps in the middle that will take me from one place to another. Here's how I do it. The finish line. First of all, you've got to start at the end. Counterintuitive, perhaps, but super effective in figuring out which direction your path should go. By now, we've done enough work together that you should already have one clear and defining objective, one goal you're focused on right now. That's where you start. To give you an idea of exactly how I've used this roadmap strategy, I'm going to share a personal goal of mine from the past. I wanted to have a cookbook. I was a food blogger at the time, and having a cookbook felt like the ultimate goal. That was my finish line. I figured out my very specific what by zeroing in on my very specific why. I wanted a product for my fans that would commemorate my family recipes and be a first product offering that was in line with my brand at the time. The starting point. Now that you know where you want to go, you need to practice some self-awareness and be really honest about where you're starting from. What assets, resources, and habits do you currently have that are going to help you with your journey? How can you expand on them and use them for exponential growth? What habits do you have that might derail you or push you off course? 
How can you be intentional in planning around those in advance so they don't sneak up on you? What good habits could you develop to replace those negative ones? My starting place for my cookbook was great. As a food blogger, I knew photographers and designers and a food stylist to help me make it all look incredible. What I didn't have was a literary agent or experience in the cookbook space. I was super honest with myself about what I did and didn't have access to, and then I got to work. The Guideposts and Mile Markers Now that you know where you're going and you know where you're starting, the next step is a brainstorm of every single thing you can think of that might help you get closer to the goal. And a great brainstorm always starts with great questions. For instance, how could I get a cookbook deal? At the time, I had no idea. So I headed over to Google. I swear to you, the answer for literally everything exists on the internet for free. And I asked that exact question. There were all kinds of answers, and I wrote each and every one in a big idea soup. That's what I call my written brainstorm sessions because they always look like a big, messy bowl of possibility. Anytime I'm creating a soup, my goal is to find at least 20 ideas for how I'm going to get there. I put down anything I can think of, and since it's a brainstorm, I don't debate whether it's a good idea. I just write it down. So in this instance, I wrote, write a book proposal, get a literary agent, grow my social media following, establish myself as an expert in this field, research book proposal, hire graphic designer, hire photographer, do recipe testing, and so on. The problem with stopping at this soup, besides the fact that it's overwhelming, is that there are too many possible directions to head. We want to create a clear direction, and this brainstorm page, while awesome to get your wheels spinning, is likely to create a lot of stops and starts and unproductive attempts. So in order to move forward, we've got to get it organized. The question is, how do we do that? The answer is, surprisingly, with another question. Look at your brainstorm and ask yourself, of all the ideas you've got there, what are the three major things that if you actually achieve them, they would, without question, get you to your goal? Getting from 20 ideas down to three might seem impossible, especially since so many of them would be helpful. But I'm convinced that if you force yourself to come up with only three, those three will be the guideposts you'll need to get you back on track if you get lost along the way. How do you choose your three? Go to your end goal and ask yourself, what is the step that comes just before this? Then choose two more guideposts working back from there. The thing about a guidepost is that it's something you cannot easily achieve without taking a bunch of other steps to get you there. People often hesitate to write these down because they seem nearly as impossible as the dream itself. Their brains immediately start to come up with all the reasons that it's going to be impossible to achieve. Maybe they're like, sure, 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 I can write down the thing. 
But eventually, reality creeps back in, and my negative self-talk creeps back in, and I don't know how I'm going to get there. And gosh, I'd like to do this thing, but I don't. No, 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 no. Don't focus on the lack. Don't worry about how you'll hit each guidepost. How will stop you dead in your tracks. Obsessing over how is what stops us from going anywhere. Right now, we're not focused on the how. We're focused on the what. As in, what steps do I need to take to make this goal a reality? For my publishing journey, my roadmap started to take form when I forced myself to come up with my three guideposts. The very last step before getting a deal for publishing a cookbook is submitting a proposal to publishing houses. Guidepost number three. Okay, so what's the step before that? Well, Google told me that in order to submit to a publishing house, I had to have a literary agent. No publisher will just blindly accept a manuscript off the street. So finding a literary agent became the second guidepost on my map. Then I asked myself what I would need to secure a literary agent. There are so many ways to land one, but they all had one central thing in common. I need to create a proposal of some kind to explain what I wanted to do. That became the first guidepost in my roadmap. I had a starting point and an ending point, and three major guideposts on the way. Now, now I was able to figure out the how, or as I like to call them, the mile markers. I had forced myself to come up with three major guideposts, but the mile markers can be numerous because these are all the little things, all the hows you're going to need to figure out and do to get you to that next guidepost. To identify them, you start at the beginning of your roadmap for the first time since you began laying it out, and you do another idea brainstorm with this question: What do I need to do to get from my starting point to my first guidepost? I suggest putting on some pump-up music and writing as much as you can, as fast as you can, anything that pops into your head. Don't even think about it. Just write down every idea you can think of that in any way could help you get to your first guidepost. I call this a possibilities list. Let's say your goal is to start a wedding planning business. Yes, I'm writing what I know, which means that your third guidepost would be to land some clients. Well, then your second guidepost would be to make sure your potential clients know about your business. You'll need a portfolio. An Instagram account or a website where potential brides can see your work. Of course, none of that matters if you don't have any work to show off. So your first guidepost has to be the creation of that content. Since I have made this exact possibilities list to get me to this exact guidepost, I can tell you that the questions I asked myself along the way looked like this: How do I get content? Photographers, florists, should I partner with someone to design and produce different looks? Could I volunteer my time with other wedding planners in exchange for photos in my portfolio? How have other people created portfolios? Are there books I could read on this topic? 
Are there influencers I can follow who are talking about this subject? Whenever I'm not sure how to get to the next step, even today, I create a possibilities list and fill up pages and pages with things like, oh yeah, Sarah's cousin works for that company that I've been dying to have as a client. There were many times when I didn't remember I had a connection until I sat down and made my list. This happens because we spend so much time sitting in what we don't have that we don't realize the access we actually do have. Warning, this is often the place where the dreamers start wandering off the side of the highway to gather wildflowers rather than making any real traction toward their destination. For example, if my first guidepost is clearly create a book proposal, There are all sorts of things I could brainstorm to get me there. Researching book proposals, creating a Pinterest board of ideas, finding out the structure of a book proposal for this genre, talking to authors in this space and asking them for advice, finding a graphic designer to help me lay it out, taking an online course to learn about book proposals, going to a writer's conference, and so forth. Most people see this list and get excited, thinking, holy crap, look at all these ideas. Simultaneously, they convince themselves that all ideas are created equal, and all of them will be effective. Don't get it twisted. Not all of these ideas will get me anywhere closer to my goal, but many of these ideas are way sexier and way more fun than the tasks that actually will get me there. Creating a Pinterest board? That's so fun. I think I'll do that. Ooh, and a writer's conference. I've always wanted to go to one of those. And brainstorming with my new friends from my writing club? That's perfect. We convince ourselves that all of these are great ideas, and that we're spending dedicated time working toward our guideposts when really we're just walking around in circles. If I'm being honest with myself, I know the exact step that comes right before creating a book proposal. I don't want to do it because it's the hardest, suckiest part of writing a book, but I know what it is. I've got to actually write the words. I want to encourage you here because if you're being realistic, then you must realize that a big part of the reason you haven't achieved the guidepost already is that your mile markers, while doable, take hard work. Mile markers are the achievable steps, and you can take one after another to get you to the destination, but they're always work. Always. As I sit reading this book, Girl, Wash Your Face has been out in the world for almost a year. At this point, it's sold 2.6 million copies and become a number one New York Times bestseller. And I've received thousands and thousands of notes from women all over the world telling me how helpful it's been in their lives. What a gift. What an incredible blessing that's so big, I couldn't even have dreamed of it. Do you think that success made it any easier to write this book? No. Writing is always hard for me. It's always work. Even though I've done it so many times before, even though I've been able to experience success with it, 
Even though I believe so deeply in what I'm writing about, even then, it's a slog to the finish line. The idea is not that a roadmap will magically make the journey easier. The idea is that a roadmap will make the journey effective. I believe deeply in what you're capable of. I think you can achieve anything you set your mind to, but you've got to set your mind to it. You've got to be relentless in your pursuit and flexible in your methods. So buck up and start creating the mile markers that will get you to each guidepost. If you're not sure what they are, then ask yourself better questions. For instance, if my question is, how can I sign with a literary agent? My answer at the time would have been, I have no idea which gets me exactly nowhere. But if I change the question to who might know how I can get a literary agent or where could I research to find out the answer or are there books or podcasts or YouTube videos about this, then suddenly my answers are endless. Remember, if you're not getting effective answers, it's because you're not asking effective questions. Also. Don't get freaked out about all the possibilities. This goal of yours is going to feel like something gigantic when you begin. Remember how to eat an elephant? One bite at a time. When you're first starting to work toward a goal, it's so easy to get overwhelmed. There are so many things to do and never enough hours to do them. If you're like me, you have 18 to-do lists going and they've got everything on them. If it feels overwhelming, it's because you're trying to do too many things at one time. Slow down. Make a daily list. Make a weekly list. Make a monthly list. Now double check them. Is everything on those lists essential to helping you get to the next guidepost? If not, revise and refocus. Now you've got your roadmap. The next step is almost as important as figuring out the rest of it. In between you and the goal that you've always wanted are three words. Maybe you write them down on a sticky note. Girl, maybe you should get it tattooed on your body. But it's this simple. Go all in. Go all in. Take massive action immediately. Not on Monday, not at the new year, not next month, but right now, today. Take massive action on the first mile marker on your roadmap. By the way, creating a roadmap in the first place is going to be a massive action for many of you. But please don't stop there. Stay in. For a lot of people, it's easy for them to go all in. They just don't stay there. Something will happen and life gets in the way and they fall off the wagon and think, ugh, now it's all downhill. No, no, sister, half the battle in between you and where you want to go is just your willingness to stand back up. Everybody falls down. Everybody slips up. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody gets off course. Plenty of people set out headed toward their goal They've got their roadmap, they're following along, and then all of a sudden, something happens. Maybe it's something simple like slipping off their diet. Maybe they miss one week of training and then it's two and suddenly a whole month is gone. 
Maybe it's been six months or six years since they sat down at their computer to write. Whatever has happened, whatever you did or didn't do, shame isn't the answer to overcoming it. It's done. It's in the past, and beating yourself up about it won't change anything. Not only is that true, but so is the fact that it's not a life sentence. Anything other than death is temporary. The problem is that you're letting a short-term choice become your long-term decision. You believe that what happened in the past is who you are. That's BS. Who you are is defined by the next decision you make, not the last one. So get planning, make your roadmap, and take the next step. Skill two, confidence. Confidence matters. Confidence is the belief that you can count on yourself, that you trust your gut in the place you find yourself in. It matters a great deal to anyone in business. Particularly if your job or company requires you to promote yourself as a way to get to the next level, but it also matters a ton in your personal life and how you think about yourself and your dreams. I don't think we talk about it enough. If you feel like a crappy mom, if you feel totally unprepared to take on your role as a mom each day, how likely are you to enjoy your life and show up well for your babies? If you've always dreamed of doing a triathlon, but you believe you're terrible at any physical activity and are positive you'll never figure it out, how likely are you to successfully take on the next race? Confidence matters, and here's the magic: confidence is a skill. It's not something you're born with. Certainly, if you were raised in a particular way, then confidence might have been instilled in you from childhood. But if you weren't so lucky, please know that it's something you can develop and that you absolutely should pursue. Here are three things I found make a big difference for building up self-confidence. How you look. This chapter is coming at you live from one of the most highfalutin beauty parlors in the Western Hemisphere, nine zero one Salon on Melrose Place in Los Angeles, to be specific. As I sit here riding feverishly on my laptop, a team of beautiful twenty-somethings are working to cover up my roots and add in highlights around my face. A myriad of tiny bowls filled with different colored potions are spread out in every direction. They're painting color onto my hair with the precision of a pediatric heart surgeon, all while chatting amongst themselves about which house they're renting for Coachella and whether or not Kristen Cavallari's new diet book is any good. Their work is equal parts artistry and witchcraft, and when they finish, I'll look the best I've looked since the last time I left this chair. The entire procedure costs as much as a used Sebring convertible. And that's just the coloring process. I have hair extensions and eyelash extensions, and I got a boob job five years ago because I was tired of my post-breastfeeding chest resembling tube socks filled with pudding. I know not everyone approves of spending all of this time and money on your physical appearance. I know because they send me notes. How can you tell us to love ourselves the way we are, but then spend money on makeup and hours getting your hair colored? I understand that this might seem hypocritical to you, 
but you may have missed one key distinction. I do believe we should love ourselves the way we are. The way I am just happens to involve fake eyelashes. In all seriousness, I love makeup. Have you ever seen those videos on YouTube where gals do different looks and use a hundred different makeups and fourteen different brushes just to shade one eyelid? That is artistry. That is a skill acquired over years of effort, and I bow down. When I put on my own makeup, I think it's fun, and I like how I look afterward. I don't do it because you think I should look a certain way, or because society likes a well-contoured cheekbone. I do it because I like it. I invest a lot of money and a lot of time into the way I look because it makes me feel well. Shoot, I guess it makes me feel great. And when I feel great, I feel confident. Before I dig into this more, I've got to add some disclaimers. I'm positive that not everyone I know ties some of or a lot of their confidence into their looks. Some of us were raised right. Some of us had upbringings that said it's your heart and your mind and your spirit that matter. That is how it should be. But just because it should be a certain way doesn't mean it is. If I'm going to talk about what really works instead of what should work, then we've got to be truthful. Every woman I know, I cannot think of one single woman who doesn't, feels more confident when she likes the way she looks. Every single one. Disclaimer number two: Confidence comes from you liking the way you look, not from you looking any certain way. I love big hair and eyelashes and shoes with some kind of heel. My friend Sammy and Beans—they love sneakers and hats, and I'm pretty sure they think they look worse with a lot of makeup on. It's not their preferred style. If the greatest makeup artist in the world gave them a full makeover, they would appreciate the artistry but hate the results. It would actually make them feel less confident because they wouldn't recognize themselves when they looked in the mirror. Gaining confidence from your appearance isn't about having a specific style. Gaining confidence from the way you look is about having a personal style. Do you love sneakers and button downs? Are you into sleek and straight hair and minimal makeup? Is your wardrobe as bright and eclectic as your personality? Yes to all of it. Yes to any of it. Yes to knowing who and what you are and allowing it to be represented in the way you look. I know there will be people who disagree with me. I know there will be people who listen to this and think I'm being superficial. I understand that it seems vapid to start a chapter on confidence and ground it in physical appearance, in how you look instead of how you feel. But I don't think the alternative would be helpful. At least it wouldn't have been helpful for me back in the day. I read so many books that told me to look inside, or pray, or say mantras or affirmations to make myself feel more confident. I did it for years as a way of boosting myself up. But I honestly never felt the part of a confident woman until I learned how to look the part of a confident woman. And the crazy thing is, my version of confidence probably looks nothing like yours. The point is not that you replicate someone else's ideal. The point is that you figure out your own. I wish this were a picture book so I could show you any shot of me from basically 2003 to 2016. 
In fairness to the Rachel of the past, I do feel like I've improved over time. But it was also slow going and vaguely tragic. And it was entirely because I didn't know how to dress for my body type or do my hair or makeup. Not knowing how made me feel insecure, but I would never actually admit to that. Instead, I loudly proclaimed that I wasn't that kind of girl. I would swipe on a little eyeliner and some lip balm and throw my air-dried, frizzy hair in a bun, all while militantly telling myself that women who cared so much about their appearance were airheads who were focused on the wrong things. So why was it then that every single time I had to get my hair and makeup done for press or TV, I felt like a hundred million dollars? How come I would plan date nights with my husband whenever I knew I was going to have makeup on from a shoot? How come I always felt better, had more energy, and a better attitude every time I felt like I looked great? Because when you like the way you look, you'll love the way you feel. This was a big learning curve for me as a grown-up, and it all started with a boob job. It's true. I did get a boob job. It's sort of a crazy thing to admit, but I'm doing it. I'm sure some of you are like, good for you, girl. That's everyone's dream post-baby. And some of you are like, you're an embarrassment to feminists everywhere. But I did it. And since I always try to be honest about the things I go through in my life, I'm telling you about it now. I guess let's start with why. Hmm. How do I explain this delicately? When I got pregnant the first time, I had lovely little B-cups. I loved them, and they loved me back. After the baby was born, the milk came in, and those lovely bees became E-cups. No, that's not a mistake. That's a cup size. E, as in elephant, as in enormous, as in yowza. So, the twins went from little to big and then back again. After that round, I gave birth to two more children, which means that the whole E for everyone rating, it happened two more times. After my last son Ford was born, I started exercising more and eating better, and I maintained a healthier weight, which was awesome. But that weight meant that my boobs, which were already in a little bit of a sad state, became nothing. I don't mean that they were worn out. I don't mean that they looked tired. I mean that there was nothing there. No filler, no cushion. The cup, in this case, was definitely half empty. So where before I never really thought about my breasts much, now I notice them all the time. I hated to wear a bathing suit. I hated to go without a bra or even worse, topless in front of my husband. Mostly, I hated how focused I was on something so trivial. Dave never said anything. He approached them just like he always had, with the reverence and unfettered joy of a straight man seeing boobs. But my issues got worse. Honestly, I'm not one to wallow for long. I'm a fixer. And while I can't fix everything, this was something I definitely could do something about. I decided I was going to have them lifted back up. I found a doctor who was awesome and who also has kids, so she totally got what I was looking for. I made Dave go with me to the appointment, and I asked a million questions, which mostly had to do with whether I'd die on the table like that mom from Clueless, and whether I'd lose sensitivity, because that might almost be as bad as death. 
They took some pictures for my chart, which, let me tell you, is freaking abysmal. Nobody needs to see their sad little boobs through the lens of an HD camera under intense lighting. I ended up choosing the smallest implant they make because every time I tried on the bigger sizes, I felt uncomfortable. I didn't want to be someone new. I just wanted to feel like my old self. And as Dave put it, when I asked him what he thought, you're beautiful no matter what you do. Just choose something that makes you feel good. Smart man. We scheduled the appointment for surgery. I was so excited, but as the day got closer and closer, I started to freak out. Not about whether to do it, but about whether I'd live. I had three beautiful children at the time, and surgery is scary. What if something happened to me because of my own vanity? Can you imagine what a horrible legacy I'd leave behind? Oh, my mom was super healthy, but she wanted to look good in a tank top, and now she's dead. I made my friends promise that, in the case of my untimely demise, they would help perpetuate the myth for my children that I died in a Doctors Without Borders mission. Never mind that I'm not a doctor. In this made-up past, I was much more valiant than I actually am. The morning of the surgery, I was a mess. I started freaking out as soon as I got into the room with all the pre-op stuff, and Dave had to come sit with me. It didn't help that my anesthesiologist turned out to be blonde, tan, and basically a very, very young Ken doll. Like, whatever age you have to be to have just made it out of medical school, that's what we were dealing with here. His name was Dr. Aiden, he said. He spent the morning surfing, he said. Surfing. All I could think while they wheeled me to the room was, Oh, precious Savior. This surfing child doctor is going to see my boobs. Sometimes when I get nervous, I manage those nerves by talking nonstop. So I was chattering nervously when the model doctor put the IV into my arm. That IV, though I didn't realize it at the time, was filled with some really strong drugs. I remember telling the assembled medical personnel that no anesthesiologist should look like this guy. He was supposed to be bald and 60-plus years old. He should look like Danny DeVito. I remember all the nurses and doctors laughing at me, and I remember thinking, Shut up, Rach. Shut up. But I was too far gone. I could not shut up. The last thing I remember saying before slipping off into oblivion was, Please, Dr. Aiden, whatever you do, don't look at my destroyed boobs. Not even kidding. And then I woke up and I lived. I was so excited to be alive that I didn't even mind that it felt like my chest had gone 12 rounds with the prize fighter. Between the anxiety and pre-op and the unexpected presence of a ridiculously good-looking anesthesiologist to make me more nervous, not to mention the recovery time, it was all quite an ordeal. But in the end, I absolutely thought it was worth it, and I still do. Will you think so too? Maybe. Maybe not. I understand that not everyone will agree with my choices, but that's okay. The point was that it was something I wanted to do for myself, something I knew would make me feel more confident. I decided how I want to look, and when I made the choice to change something in such a drastic and permanent way— it made me start to consider other things I hadn't before. 
Remember, for years I told myself that women who cared about their looks were artificial and vapid. But now I'd done possibly the most artificial thing ever. I'd had someone put the medical equivalent of a balloon inside my body in an attempt to feel more confident. And you know what? It worked. I loved my new boobs. Five years later, and I still love them. But now I needed to reconcile the story I'd always told myself with the new reality I was facing. I had done something purely for vanity's sake, but I didn't feel like a vain person. I didn't sit around all day obsessing over my looks, and I certainly didn't judge people for theirs. So if it was possible to still be the same woman who was so focused on personal growth, on improving what was on the inside, then could it be possible that my former beliefs about how valuable or not valuable our outside appearances are were founded more in my insecurities than in actual evidence? Well, obviously. Our own insecurities on any subject either spark our curiosity or they feed our judgment. We either see the opportunity to grow and so allow ourselves to wonder, ask questions, and do research, or we become fearful and close down the idea immediately. Only an idiot would consider that. Only frivolous people try something new when they're already on a path. Your insecurity makes it so that anyone who is doing it differently than you is an indictment on all the ways you're not measuring up. Making sweeping judgments about others or, more upsetting, about yourself isn't helping you. Maybe you'll try getting a blowout or try skinny jeans or try open-toe booties with a stacked heel and maybe you'll hate them, but you are never going to know if you aren't open to considering it. If your self-confidence is through the roof, then keep doing whatever it is you're doing now. But if you don't feel good about the way you look, what are you waiting for? Have you decided this is just what life is like? Stop buying into that. Life is whatever you believe it is. So what if you never knew how to dress in high school or how to style your hair? That was a long time ago, and you're not that girl anymore. I know I sound like a broken record, but every single thing you want to know how to do is in a YouTube video right now for free. Curling my hair, putting on makeup, selecting the best outfits for short girls, how to wear white jeans, literally all things I've learned in the last five years. Don't believe me? Go look on my Instagram and scroll on back. It won't take you long until you're like, holy crap, what is she wearing? What was going on with that hair and those eyebrows? Go ahead. I give you full permission to creep on my old photos. Just because you used to be a certain way doesn't mean you have to stay that way. Just because you feel insecure doesn't mean you can't make a change. If you don't like the way you look, if you don't love your personal style, then figure it out. Make an investment and don't let anyone make you feel guilty about it. How you act. About 10 years ago, I was a successful event planner in Los Angeles, and I'd built up a name for myself in the luxury wedding space. I love the work, but after years of bridezillas and working through every weekend of the year, I longed to grow into the corporate space, which didn't have any of the emotional baggage that wedding planning did. As I mentioned earlier, I've always been in the habit of calling my shot, figuring out my finish line, and then creating a roadmap from there. 
In this instance, my dream client slash event was the Sundance Film Festival. It was super glamorous and filled with celebrities and also took place in a really difficult setting. Producing the luxury of a Los Angeles event in a tiny mountain town in Utah that's only accessible by a canyon likely to be covered with snow this time of year, I knew if I could pull that off, it would launch my company into a new stratosphere. Sundance became my goal. So then I backed up from there. If I wanted to get some attention for producing a great event at Sundance, then it needed to be an event that would get notice. I did some research and learned that Entertainment Weekly was the major player at the festival. They threw the biggest parties, had the most celebrity attendees, and therefore got the most press coverage. They were the best, and I wanted to work with the best. I was in no way qualified to do it. Not all events are created equal, and a film festival in Utah is something else entirely. Still, there was no way I would ever actually learn how to produce the type of event I wanted to create if I didn't ever throw my hat in the ring. I went for it. I asked a friend of a friend of a friend to make an introduction, and I finally got a phone call with the events team. I pitched my heart out. They weren't interested. They were very kind about it, but they knew I was out of my league. Like a dog that suddenly decides to walk upright on two legs, just because you might be able to do something doesn't mean it's the right choice. They weren't even interested in having me bid for the job. I was discouraged, but discouragement won't get you anywhere. Every other week for the next 18 months, I followed up with my contact at Entertainment Weekly. I sent her party inspiration and details on new drinks. I told her the best DJs to hire and cute outfits the staff could wear. I intentionally added value wherever I could and never one time asked if they'd consider me for the job. One day, the EW events person called out of the blue. We need a caterer for Sundance. You do that, right? I absolutely did not own a catering company. But I had worked so hard to get this opportunity to partner with them that I jumped at the chance. Of course, what do you need? This moment, bidding my first Sundance job, is always the best example I have to give when someone asks me about the idea of fake it till you make it. I hate that phrase because it implies you've got nothing else to back it up. There's a big difference between faking something that you have no idea how to do and having the confidence to step into a role that you don't have full training for yet. There's a study that shows that when a man is considering a new job, he will apply for a position he feels he's at least 60% qualified for. His confidence tells him that he'll make up the other 40% by learning as he goes. By contrast, that same study shows that the average woman feels that she must be 100% qualified to apply for anything. Okay, think about this for a second. How on earth can you be qualified for something you've never done? It's a catch-22. You won't put yourself out there. You never try for fear of failure, so you never grow to the next level. When it came to the Sundance opportunity, I absolutely wasn't a caterer, but I had worked with and managed caterers as vendors for years, and I knew what would be involved. 
I had connections and resources and enough skill with research and planning to get myself the rest of the way there. I wasn't faking it because it never occurred to me that I wouldn't be able to figure it out if I needed to. I had years of practice to back me up. Certainly nothing at that level, but I was confident that I hadn't ever let a client down and I certainly wasn't about to start. I would never take money from someone for a service I didn't have the ability to provide, but I also would never have been able to grow my skill set if I hadn't continuously pushed myself to the very edge of it. That single Sundance event launched my business into an entirely new level, just as I had believed it might. I turned that first year as a caterer into the next year as an event planner. Soon, we were producing lounges and events for every studio and brand that wanted to celebrate in Park City. Sundance became my most profitable contract. In fact, it's what paid for the start of the Chic site and hiring staff when I finally decided to transition into this space. So many good things came out of a willingness to act confident even when I didn't always feel confident. It's like anything else. You can make yourself feel anything you set your mind to as long as you back it up with action. I acted confident in what I could do as an event planner, and then I backed it up with research and hard work to arm myself with the skills necessary to pull it off. Who you hang out with. I know I've already touched on this a bit with the whole you become the five people you hang out with most topic, but it bears repeating here. Years ago, my sister had graduated from cosmetology school and was unsure where to go from there. She liked the idea of working in the beauty industry in some capacity, but she wasn't confident about building up a client roster in this new industry, a must for any hairstylist. She tried several different assistant jobs at salons, and while she liked interacting with the people, she was still struggling to find her footing. As fate would have it, an acquaintance of mine sent out an email with a job description she was looking to fill. The acquaintance owned a spa, and they needed a manager. They'd tried several different people in the role, but nobody seemed to be a good fit. I read through the description, and with every passing line item, I got more and more excited. I immediately forwarded it to Mel. You should totally apply for this job, I screamed texted her. She still wasn't sold on the job she was then working in the salon, so she went ahead and pursued and subsequently landed this role as a spa manager. She was so nervous that first week about how it would all work out. She was new to L.A. and still learning to navigate the traffic and fast pace, and like most L.A. newbies, she was a bit intimidated that she wouldn't dress right or speak correctly in this fancy spa near Beverly Hills. A few weeks into her time there, I received an email from my acquaintance thanking me profusely for sending Melody her way. She could not stop singing her praises as an exceptional employee. This didn't surprise me at all. I knew that my sister was smart and gracious, and I knew she was an incredibly hard worker. What was surprising is what happened about six months later. Melody became a totally different woman. She was calm and poised and totally confident in herself and her skills. She wasn't anxious anymore about her new city or her new role or what she would do next. She wasn't afraid to give her opinion, and she didn't worry about what people thought. I remember saying to Dave, 
Have you noticed how great Mel is doing? I wonder what caused such a big shift. A few weeks later, I went to the spa she worked at to get a facial, and it hit me. Melody went from being at a school filled with young people who were unsure about where they were going or how they'd make a career to working for a successful business filled with, wait for it, confident women. All day long, she interacted with coworkers who were at the height of their professions. They had to be to work at a place like this. All day long, she helped clients who were successful in life and in business. They had to be to afford a place like this. Without even trying to or being aware of it, she'd absorbed their confidence like osmosis. You want to be more confident? Hang out with people who are. I know that confidence isn't often described as a learned behavior, but I truly believe it's a skill you can learn like any other. Be mindful of the people you hang out with, the words you use, and the way you present yourself to the world around you. Pay attention to the times or the circumstances that make you feel the most self-assured, and then work to cultivate more opportunities like those. This shift in perception, particularly for any of you who are in business, can truly be life-changing.